Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Uh, During the Lenten season, we are looking at the meaning of the cross. Uh, And I mentioned last week, I'll say it again, that if this series were more properly named, it would be called the meanings of the cross. Um, The goal of this series is to gain a more robust theology of the cross and therefore a more robust faith so that we're learning to see uh, all the significance of the cross. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's just an effort to help us say that if, in fact, it's true, as Christians claim, that the creator God of the universe became a man and that man died at the hands of the Roman Empire, then that's significant. And we should spend some time trying to reflect and discern what the meaning of this event is. And so we're trying to gain a more robust faith as we look at multiple ways of understanding the cross. So far, that we've, we've discovered that the cross is the point of eternal forgiveness. And the cross is the enduring model for discipleship. And then last week, we looked at how the cross is the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. The cross is the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. In other words, the cross is God saying, this is what I am like. Um, So today, what we're going to do is we're going to discover that the cross is also the beauty that saves the world. The cross is also the beauty that saves the world. Uh, This phrase, uh, beauty will save the world, um, is a phrase from... Uh, comes from Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot. Um, it is a small part of the book. Uh, it's, it could be taken out and it wouldn't affect the plot in any way. Uh, and yet this phrase, beauty will save the world, has captured the imaginations of theologians now for generations since the book was written. Um, so what I want to talk to you today, what I want to talk to you about today Uh, cannot be proof texted. (laughs) Uh, Do you know what proof texting is? Proof texting is when you, someone makes a truth claim and and then you say, well, here's the verse in the Bible that proves that, Um, which can be helpful in some contexts, but in a lot of contexts maybe isn't helpful uh, because there isn't a particular verse uh, that kind of points to a truth, but rather you have Uh, the whole collection of the scriptures that point us in a direction. Let me give you an example. Uh, The Trinitarian doctrine of God has been uh, the orthodox belief almost since the beginning of the church, or since the beginning of the church. Uh, That is that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you cannot find a verse in the Bible that proof texts the Trinity. And the word Trinity never appears in scripture. Uh, It just doesn't. Uh, It's never in the Bible. But as you look at the scriptures as over a whole, you kind of get a sense that God is is expressing God's self in all of these different ways. And so the early church fathers began to catch on that God exists as this Trinitarian God. So 
Uh, this is a big lead-in, right? <laughs> so what, I'm, what I want to talk to you about today cannot be proof-texted. You can't point to a verse in the Bible and, and say, look, there it is. It says that Jesus and Christ on the cross is the beauty that will save the world. But what you can do is look at the witness of the Scriptures as a whole. And there's one passage in particular that I feel like kind of points us to the real beauty of the cross. And it's a verse that I promise all of you know. And it's found in John chapter 3, verse 16. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Also, I'm going to read 17 because there's a good chance that a lot of you may not know verse 17. Okay, so John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this morning I'm preaching from John 3.16, but I'm not preaching from John 3.16. I'm using John 3.16 as an example of how it points us to the beauty of the cross. Uh, but let's begin this way. During the medieval period, Greek philosophers sought to understand the nature of being as ancient Greek philosophers did, right? There was not the internet, uh, and so what did you do all day uh, other than watch cat videos is you thought about the nature of being. So this is what great Greek philosophers did. And from their pursuits, what has come to be known as the transcendentals developed. The transcendentals are the things that transcend. The, the nature of being is for everything that it exists is going to try and pursue these things that transcend. And the transcendentals they identified are the good, the true, and the beautiful. The good, the true, and the beautiful. These are to this day known as the transcendentals. And so these ancient Greek philosophers identified that these things are worthy of desire in and of themselves. They don't have to serve a utilitarian function. They don't to need to lead us beyond something other than themselves. But they are worthy pursuits all on their own. The good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, in fact, they said what we want, we want that which is true simply because it's true. We desire that which is good simply because it is good. And we stand in awe of the beautiful because it is beautiful. We need no other justification um, for desiring the true, the good, and the beautiful other than they are true, good, and beautiful. And so what the early church fathers did is they, they kind of knew about these Greek philosophers and the work that they were doing. And the early church fathers, in fact, agreed with the Greek philosophers. And they said, these are actually good and worthy things, worthy of our aspiration and worthy of our pursuits. But what the church fathers did is they went one step further and they said, the reason these things are worthy of our desire is because they are the very attributes of God. That God is the true. God is the good. 
and God is the beautiful. And the conviction of the early church fathers is that these things, the good, the true, and the beautiful, are ultimately and supremely revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? Who knew that Greek philosophy was so relevant to your life? Okay, so as you look then at the arc of church history, the good, the true, and the beautiful have played an important role in how we articulate Christian theology, okay? These three things, these transcendentals that maybe you've never heard about before have played a really important role in how we articulate Christian theology even to this day. So to help us understand and defend the truth, we have this thing called apologetics. And Christian apologetics is the defense of truth that is revealed in Christ. Christian apologetics is the defense of truth that is revealed to us in Christ. And for Christians, we believe that Christ is the truth. Okay? I expected the amen to be a little bit of a mutter there because we are so focused on doctrines and doctrinal statements and all of that that when we say that the Orthodox Christian claim is that Jesus himself is the truth, which, by the way, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the Christian claim is that truth is not primarily a doctrine, but a person the person of Jesus Christ. But we, have, but we have to articulate this, and so we come up with, with doctrines, and we have to defend these doctrines, right? And so we come up with, so we have this thing called apologetics. So Christian apologetics is the defense of truth that is revealed to us in Christ. And we have been, we, being the church, the capital C church, we have been really, really good at Christian apologetics throughout history, all the way up until today. In fact, most of discipleship in the modern church has been focused on apologetics. Some of you are like, whoo, man, we are just, this is a struggle. We're struggling here, right? I can feel, I just sense it in the room. Some of you are like, how many times in just the last minute has he said apologetics? Like, is this going to like lighten up at all? Um, like not for a while, but so hang with me. Okay. Um, not for a little bit. So just like, let's like continue to hold your breath and I'll hold you underwater just a little longer and then we'll come up for air. Um, so most of discipleship in the modern church has been focused on apologetics, which is how can we defend the claim that Christ is in fact the truth? If you grew up in the evangelical church of the 90s like I did, the discipleship model was basically starting with convincing you that Christianity is true using apologetics. And then once you were convinced, uh, teaching you apologetics in order to defend the truth that you're now convinced of. Like that was the discipleship model. Now there's room and space for that and that's not all bad, right? I don't want you to mishear me. Um, but apologetics alone, apologetics alone is usually uncomfortable with things like questions that don't have clear answers, doubts, or a little bit of nuance. And of course there's a place for apologetics. But what I want you to hear is that apologetics alone cannot hold up the entire weight of our faith. Apologetics alone cannot hold up the entire weight of our faith. So, in order to help us to discern or defend the truth, we have apologetics, which is the true. Then you have the good. And to help us discern what is truly good, 
we have ethics. So you have apologetics and you have ethics. And Christian ethics is defining and understanding what is truly good in light of Christ. Defining and understanding what is truly good in light of Christ. And you cannot seek to know and understand what is good without the concept of justice entering the conversation. So thinking about good, thinking about justice in the world, identifying injustice in the world, and trying to work uh, to bring justice, to try to end injustice, to try to bring about human flourishing. These are all kind of Christian ethics-based questions. And while the church has done a pretty good job uh, in Christian ethics over the course of history, uh, in our current moment, and as in every moment, there is certainly room for critique when it comes to Christian ethics. Now, to help us then think about beauty, we have aesthetics. So you have apologetics, and you have ethics, and you have aesthetics. To help us experience beauty, we have aesthetics. Christian aesthetics is how we experience the beauty of Christ. How do we experience the beauty of Christ? And Christian aesthetics throughout church history is mostly a mixed bag. <laughs> Right? So we've done really good at apologetics. We've done pretty well at ethics. But when it comes to aesthetics and this concept of beauty, throughout church history, it's mostly a mixed bag. Uh, the modern church, in fact, has... Um, by the way, I can only critique that which I am a part of, and I'm a part of the modern evangelical church. Right? So as a person in the club, I feel like I can critique it. So the modern church has become so focused on utility and function that we've almost completely lost a sense of beauty. Uh, go to old and ancient churches around the world, you'll find sanctuaries constructed in such a way that they attempt to reflect the beauty of God back to the worshiper. So you have uh, in old sanctuaries, you would have stained glass windows that as you look around, they retell the story of the gospel. You would have architecture set up and designed with all sorts of layers of symbolism to try to point people to Christian truth, right? This is what happens in kind of old ancient sanctuaries across the world. You go to churches in modern America, and what you'll find is the sanctanasium. Okay? Uh, if you've not heard this term before, sanctanasium is a, uh, a two-words mashed together, sanctuary and gymnasium. And so you have this, this sanctuary that within minutes could be transformed into a gymnasium. It's called the sanctanasium. Uh, this is a real thing. I am not making this up. This is 100% real, okay? Now, and, and I don't have anything against gymnasiums at all, but... I think the sanctanasium kind of points us to just how utilitarian and function-oriented we have become. The in, well, and, 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 we, and the church can hardly be blamed. We live in a culture where value is assessed based on productivity and function. And so if our own lives, if our own lives are measured according to how, what do you do for work? What are you worth? And how many symbols of, of, of wealth can you show to other people in your life? We can hardly blame the church. 
For then saying, how can, our, how can this room function and be, be a utility beyond just the few minutes on Sunday morning that we use it for worship, right? Uh, but so the sanctanasium, that idea becomes a, a symptom of just how utilitarian we have become. But here's the thing about beauty. Beauty doesn't have to serve a function. It's just beautiful. Beauty does not have to be utilitarian. It just exists and is valuable on its own because it's beautiful. Now, I'm being a little bit melodramatic, and of course there's more nuance than I'm providing, but I think the contrast between how we used to think of worship space and sort of the utility that we now approach worship space is a good example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So, when it comes to the transcendentals, the good, uh, the true, and the beautiful, we have apologetics, and, and we have aesthetics, and then we have... Ugh, Ethics, thank you. <laughs> we have these three things. Um, we, have the <laughs> we have those three things, right? If the church is only known for defending the truth and having apologetics, or if the church is only known for shouting, we know what's good for you, ethics, then it runs the risk of coming across as arrogant and irrelevant. I submit that, in fact, this is exactly what has happened in culture. The by and large, church has lost credibility in culture as we have shouted about Christian ethics only to sacrifice our Christian ethics for political power, or then to declare Christian truth only to deny that truth with our own action. And so we've said apologetics are really important, but then when we kind of like sacrifice what we know and say to be true in order to gain certain things, right? Or if we say Christian ethics are so important, but then you have all of these kinds of things come out and we realize we're not even living by our own ethical standards, then the church will lose footing, will lose relevance. What will give, I'm convinced, what will give the church a hearing once again is to focus on the aesthetics. And I'm not talking about remodeling all of our sanctanasiums to sanctuaries, but I am talking about the beauty of our lives. The beauty of our lives. I'm convinced, I'm convinced of this, that, that we must return to people seeing the beautiful lives of the collective church and I'm convinced of this primarily because my experience shows, as a pastor, it shows me this. Uh, it is very easy to find someone with a negative opinion of the church. Um, maybe at best, they question the relevance of church in their lives. Maybe at worst, they would bear witness to abuse or harm or trauma that has come to them at the hands of the church. Uh, but it's really pretty easy to find someone who has a negative view of the church, or even despises the church. They're a dime a dozen. Conversely, it is very difficult to find someone who despises Christ. It's very easy to find someone who has a negative view of the church. It is much harder to find someone who has a negative view of Jesus. 
Because Jesus embodies for us the good, the true, and the beautiful. His life and his death were in fact beautiful. So let me say this. When the ethics and apologetics of the church have failed, the beauty of Christ shines through. When the ethics and apologetics of the church have failed, the beauty of, the Christ, of, of Christ shines through. The way of the church to gain a hearing once more is for the church to live beautiful lives that reflect the beauty of Christ back into the world. Amen. And that could be the end of the sermon, right? Amen. Wow, that was really good. All that stuff about the transcendentals. What were those again? Right? That was, oh man, that was great. Um, but... I've got time, so let me just keep going. All right. <laughs> wow, the sermon's exciting. The announcements are exciting. This is unbelievable. So there's a really key question. How do we know what is beautiful? How do we know what is beauty? Um, here's the thing. Beauty cannot be explained. Beauty must be experienced. Beauty cannot simply be explained, it must be experienced, which is to say that beauty must always take a form. Beauty must always find expression in something. And so beauty takes form in nature, beauty takes form in art, theater, literature, song, etc. So song is little more than the beautiful form of melody and harmony working together and as a drummer rhythmic meter <laughs> right <laughs> okay you gotta you gotta have the rhythmic meter and the melody and the harmony okay all of that that's that is the form that song is is harmony and melody and rhythmic meter taking form together to say oh that song is beautiful Sculpture is the beautiful form of stone or clay. Painting is the beautiful form of color. Poetry is the beautiful form of language, right? And we could go on, but beauty must always take a form. Beauty must take a form and it must be experienced. And it's difficult to describe beauty and to whatever degree that we can describe it, it is not the same as experiencing it, right? Think of someone who came home to you and said, you should have seen the sunset. It was beautiful. It was colors of this and that, and it was over the mountain line, and it was all over this and all of that. And they could describe the beauty to you, but that falls way short of you experiencing the beauty firsthand. So beauty must be experienced. Beauty always takes a form. It cannot be explained. So then the question comes, what is Christian beauty? And what form can our lives take to bear witness to the world of this beautiful form? I'll bet you know where I'm going with this one. Right? The cruciform is with a theological word for it, the cruciform, the beauty of crucifixion, the form of crucifixion. And so Christian beauty is found 
in the cruciform. Now, I know what you're thinking, but the cross is not beautiful. The cross is an ancient device of torture used for killing. You're right, 100%. And yet, it has become beautiful. Jesus Christ on the cross has become beautiful, but how can this be? Because on the surface, the cross is a man being tortured by the world's superpower of the time. And the point of death by the cross for Rome was not efficiency, right? You understand this? Uh, Rome was not worried about efficiency when they put people on the cross. There were far more efficient, utilitarian, functional ways of ending someone's life. What Rome was worried about and the point of the cross was to inflict suffering on the victim that was hanging there. And in fact, the cross was meant to be so abhorrent that those who looked upon it wouldn't dare think to go against Rome. It was a, it was a, model, a, a, a model punishment of saying, if you go against the ways of Rome, this is what happens to you. And it was meant to be so abhorrent that they would never do that. And so how does something so utterly ugly, all these thousands of years later, some preacher in Fort Collins, Colorado, saying it's beautiful? How do we get there? Right? Well, the cross is beautiful. Because as much as the ugliness of human sin is present at the cross... The beauty of divine love is present all the more. This is where all the sin, violence, and ugliness of the world is absorbed in Christ and forgiven. Going back to the week one of, of our series on the meanings of the cross, this is the point of eternal forgiveness. Forgiveness for all sins past, forgiveness of all sins yet to come. And that is true on a cosmic scale, that is true on a personal scale. That all of the ways in which you have frustrated the shalom of God in the world, all the ways in which you have worked against the will of God, all the ways, let's just use the word, that you have sinned, are forgiven at the cross. And so it's ugly because it becomes the very picture of human sin. That we would kill God in the flesh. That we would create systems that would kill an innocent man. And yet, the beauty of God shines through all the more. Because there, hanging on the cross, God in the flesh responds not with vengeance, not with violence, not with I'm going to get you, not with God can get me out of this predicament, but with forgiveness. And we look at that and we say, wow, that's beautiful. I don't want to provide any commentary at all really what's happening with what's happening in our world right now. But when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, but let me say this. What are the stories that capture your imagination? Is it the stories of Russian soldiers coming in, bombing, guns, doing this? Or is it the stories of Ukrainians maybe befriending Russian soldiers or offering kindness in the midst of heartache and war and death 
and the unthinkable? What is the very thing that causes us to look upon it and say, that is beautiful? I don't think in most circumstances it's ever the soldier coming with guns blazing as much as it is the victim offering friendship and forgiveness and reconciliation. How does the cross, something so ugly and violent as the cross become beautiful? Because this is the very place where human sin does its worst and divine love overcomes it. That's why it's beautiful. Where the ugliness of human sin are met with God's love, forgiveness, and beauty, and it isn't even a fair match. <laughs> right? That's why something as ugly as a man tortured on an ancient device of killing can be made into something beautiful that artists have depicted for centuries. I, I mentioned this a little bit last week, but I want to kind of hone in on this idea. If you were to have a journalistic photo of the cross on Good Friday, uh, all of us would be repulsed by it. All of us would say that's, that's grotesque, it's ugly, it's brutal. Uh, we would look upon it probably for a few seconds. We would be forced to look away and we would never be drawn to it again if we had a Good Friday kind of journalistic photo of the events of that day. I mean, here is a man being tortured and killed, and here's a detail we don't often think about, naked and ashamed on the cross. We would look upon it for only a few seconds, and we would look away. The goal of journalism is to tell us what happened. And yet somehow, as we recognize, as Christians through the centuries have looked at the cross and began to understand and sort of work out and discern that this is where human sin does its very worst, the ugliness of human sin is met with the beauty of divine love, and it isn't even a fair match. Divine love has the day. Forgiveness has the day. And it's a beautiful thing. And so artists have taken this thing that happened in real history that if we had cameras, we would have journalistic evidence of, which we don't because cameras didn't exist. But journalism, the goal is to tell us, here's what happened. Art, the purpose of art is to give us an interpretive lens and tell us what does this mean, right? And so you have artists throughout the centuries kind of portraying the cross. And you might look at a picture of the cross and you may say, well, that's not very realistic. Yeah, you're right. It's not. It's much more brutal and gross than that. But the goal of art is not to be realistic. The goal of art is to help tell us what it means. And so you have literally thousands of years of art of pointing us to the beauty of what took place on the cross. Okay. Author Greg Boyd says this, the cross is both the revelation of the revolting ugliness of sin and the revelation of the supremely beautiful God. It's both the revelation of the revolting ugliness of sin and the revelation of the supremely beautiful God. 
The cross is the beauty that saves the world. And it is the beauty that our lives must take on for the church to find a hearing again. That our lives, that all that was represented, all that was revealed to us on the cross, this, this self-sacrificial love, this offering forgiveness rather than vengeance, this very character of God that is being revealed on the cross, the people of God are to take that on in cruciform living so that the world might look upon the church and say, that is beautiful. Amen? Amen. Well, let me say a word of prayer, and I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Gracious God, we come to you today thankful for the events on the cross that demonstrate for us just tremendous truths. And we're thankful, God, for an opportunity to kind of gain a more robust understanding of the meaning of the cross. Um, we recognize, God, that the meaning, the significance of the cross is, has multiple layers, many, many layers to it. And perhaps just one is that somehow the ugliness of the cross has become beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that it may just be the beauty that will save the world. And so God, help us as people who claim this truth, as people who live in light of Christ and bear the name of Christ as Christians, help us, God, to take on a cruciform way of life. That we, just like sanctuaries of old might bear witness to the beauty of Christ in the world. And so God, give us wisdom, give us discernment to find the way forward. And we ask all these things in the loving name of Jesus. Amen.